Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace which he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Every year, many Jewish families will gather together to celebrate Passover. They will often have a big meal together with lots of wine and food, and they will read scriptures and other writings together. Part of that is called reading the Haggadah, and part of the Haggadah is reading a passage from Deuteronomy 26, which rehearses the famous story of the Exodus, which we're going to have read to us now. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labour. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Now, during this meal that the family have together, there is a time to just sit and listen to the word of God being spoken um, or, or repeated. But there's also, and I like this, a brilliant time where children get to ask difficult questions of their parents. I imagine hoping to try and trick them or catch them out to see if they have a good answer 
for their questions. So in preparing this message, I just tried to channel my inquisitive 10-year-old self to ask some difficult questions in order to perhaps get more out of this story. And so my first question is, why were they in Egypt in the first place? Now, it wasn't just for a nice holiday in Sharm el-Sheikh scuba diving. It was due to the sins of their previous ancestors. This wandering Aramean that we read about in Deuteronomy was called Jacob. And Jacob was famous for having been a trickster. He had tricked his dad and betrayed his own brother in order to try and gain an inheritance. He had probably unsurprisingly passed this trait on to his sons who ganged up together against Joseph, you know, the Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph, and they had sold him into slavery, ultimately into Egypt. Now, due to a whole load of God-ordained circumstances, they ended up in Egypt under, ironically, his control and his leadership. Now, at the end of Genesis, things seem to be positive, but at the beginning of the book of Exodus, things have spiralled out of control. And if we track back and look at the reason why they're ultimately in Egypt, it's because, essentially, they had sold themselves into Egypt. They had put themselves there due to their desire to get one up on another, one another and to betray one another and try and put themselves before others. They ended up in this awful predicament. Now, just imagine being one of the children born a few generations on. You were just born into this situation. No fault of your own. It's because of your ancestors. But you see no way out of this shameful existence, slavery in Egypt. And that is my second question. Why did the Egyptians enslave the Israelites? And I think this required quite a lot of self-reflection because we don't just, we shouldn't just pin it on the Egyptians and say, well, there was something wrong with them. They were just an evil people. But actually, as I was reflecting on this and reading into it and thinking, I think the reality, what I would say to my 10-year-old self is, Don't just blame the Egyptians. This tendency to enslave others is in all of us. See, I think if you can get away with controlling others for your own benefit, and it can actually prosper you, all of us at some point have given in to that temptation and tried to control others. Whether that is actively or just by participating or just watching it happen, All of us are culprits of this. Now, back then in Egypt, they used physical whips and chains to enslave people. Now we don't so much use physical things, but we use words, we use ideas, we use expectations. We use social shaming uh, in various different ways. Now, this could be how a husband essentially enslaves his wife with controlling behaviour by detaching himself from her, by requiring her to feel like she needs to prove herself over and over again in order to get his affection. That's a form of enslaving. Or it could be how a mother enslaves her children with expectations. Perhaps those are academic expectations, relationship expectations. When when are you going to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Or when are you going to get married and give me grandkids? Or it could be... Social expectations, hey, don't show our family up, these kinds of things, 
controlling the child. This child li lives, grows up in this sort of invisible bondage to these kinds of things. It might be how teenagers control one another with peer pressure or social expectation. Uh, we all know that social media can be an, a, a, an incredible breeding ground for this kind of social control, needing to feel like you need to look right, have the right thoughts, post the right things. You cannot be seen to slip up in this day and age because of what could come at you online through Twitter storms and all this kind of stuff. People are enslaved by this. Adults can easily be controlled or enslaved by their own careers, by either their own expectations or the atmosphere or the environment that they've ended up in, that they are required, they are bound to work too many hours not seeing their families in order to get that promotion. Do you see what I mean? These aren't physical whips and chains, but they enslave us. They control our behaviour. But that leads me to my next question is, why does it say that God caused terror? Well, I think that's because God is more ethical than a vegan burger and he cares more about justice than Extinction Rebellion. Now, I'm not dismissing those things or belittling them. I'm just saying God is far more interested in justice and equality and everything else that we cry out for is far more interested than we are. We are able to just watch atrocities happen and then kind of ignore them or shut them out or close a screen and forget about them. God is not. God is the one who sees atrocities, cares about what's happening and will act in time. Every single one of the plagues uh, in Egypt was in some fashion a sign of this, but the most, I guess, obvious ones are the first and the last. Think about the first plague. The river Nile turned red like blood. Why did that happen? Well, if you know the story, just a, a generation before, really, everyday Egyptians had been instructed, commanded, to break into the homes of Israelite neighbours and rip newborn babies from their mother's arms or even young children from their families and throw them into the River Nile to drown. The next morning, no sign of what had happened. And the Egyptians thought, I guess, that they had got away with this horrendous genocide. But a few years later, that river turns blood red. Now that wasn't any of their gods doing that. That was a god that they didn't yet know about. But that God had clearly seen, had clearly cared, and was clearly going to act on behalf of his people. He gave them many chances, the Egyptians. He gave them chance after chance to repent, to ask for forgiveness, to make reparations in some fashion, but none of that happened. Again and again and again, they hardened their hearts and they resisted what God was offering them, some sort of redemption, perhaps. They resist and they resist until the final plague, the angel of death comes and God deals out justice. He brings down the evil that they had committed many years before upon their own heads. 
He commands an angel of death to go and kill every firstborn child in Egypt. This was a just payment for what they had done many years before. God will deal out justice in this world. That's the message. Now then came the next question I had was, well, famously the Israelites had to paint blood over their doors in order to avoid uh, the angel of death, in, in order to avoid having their firstborn children killed. Why was that? Why didn't God just tell the angel where all the Israelites lived and then he just avoided their houses? Now this caused me to realise something that was quite uncomfortable, to be honest. I think it's possibly one of the most shameful things in the story. Despite all the evil that the Egyptians had done to the Israelites, we learn later on in the story, in the Bible, in books like Joshua and Ezekiel, that the Israelites had actually started worshipping the Egyptian gods. Now, that wasn't just a Sunday activity for them that didn't really mean anything. Worshipping the gods of another nation means that you're buying into their entire system, that you really are sort of participating in that system, in that worldview, in that way of life. The Israelites had, in some fashion, become Egyptians. They'd become Egyptianized in some weird way. And therefore... They didn't need just to be rescued, but they needed to be redeemed. They needed a price to be paid for their sins, worshipping the gods of other nations, abandoning, betraying the God who loved them and cared for them and wanted to fight on their behalf. They had betrayed him, forgotten about him, and gone after and worshipped the gods of the nation of Egypt. Now, I'd always imagined, and I think it might be because I've just seen cartoons, um, the Israelites painting blood over their doors with sort of gleeful abandon, a bit like, uh, I don't know, a musical, songs of praise, sort of dancing and singing as they did it. But I think reading closer and just thinking about it, um, I, I imagine actually it was quite a shameful activity to do. Um, think about this. I don't know if you're ever in the situation at school where your class, the class, had done something wrong, um, but there was a chance that you were going to get away with it because the teacher hadn't noticed or they didn't know who was responsible. So they couldn't put the blame on you, they couldn't put you in detention, as long as no one owns up to having committed the crime. Now, if everyone put their hand up and admitted to it, that would be fine. It would be easy to apologise. But you think of the shame that comes on that one kid who, the goody two-shoes, puts their hand up and says, Sir, sorry, we did this or that. The scorn and the shame from the whole room upon that person, even though everyone is guilty, that person putting their hand up and apologising for what they've done, they, they find shame heaped upon their shoulders in that moment. I can imagine that happening socially. In Egypt, you walk outside with this weird sort of brush thing made of a bush and you're painting blood over your doorframe and it's dripping on you and your neighbours are watching and thinking, what on earth are they doing? They were just worshipping in our temples and shrines the other day and now they're trying to uh, sort of appease this other god. What's got into them? 
You can imagine that feeling of shame as they're doing it. But I guess at some point in your life, all of us have to decide, well, shame in front of human beings or shame in front of the God that created me. And I guess when you think about it like that, it's a bit of a no-brainer. So I can imagine if, if a family had been able to get past that feeling of shame and they were painting this blood, actually it might have changed from a shameful thing to a, a, it might have been a songs of praise moment as you just think, God loves us. God forgives us. God is merciful. God is gracious. And in that moment, you're also putting out an advert to the community that you're in. Because as you're doing that, you're also saying, come join us. Because I think that the door was open for the salvation of Egyptians as well. It's not mentioned explicitly, but later on, and we see in that passage in Deuteronomy 26, that at the bottom of the passage, it mentions the Levite, who was an Israelite, and the sojourner who is among you. Now, as uh, the Israelites left Egypt and went through the wilderness and all of that, they picked up foreign people who wanted to abandon their own gods and join in with the people of Israel. Um, you see that happening all over the place. So I imagine that was also on offer in Egypt right at the beginning, as long as they were willing, these Egyptians were willing to repent, give up their old ways and join in the salvation plan of God and submit to him, I think the door of salvation was open to them. So as they're painting this blood over their door, they've got over that social shame and realising actually honour from God is far more important. They're painting going, come join us, be saved as well. And then the burning question that I wanted to ask was this. Why has God done any of this in the first place? To a people who betrayed him and belittled him, humiliated him, brought shame and dishonour upon his name. He offered them such radical forgiveness. Well, hopefully you've seen that it's got nothing to do with them or their worthiness. It's got everything to do with him, his nature and his desires. He is gracious and loving and kind and patient, steadfast and merciful. And he desires to have a people, to create a people that are like him, that represent him and reflect his nature. And in the process, enjoy it. He wants everyone to drink milk and eat. Do you eat honey or drink honey? Whatever, have milk and honey and enjoy it together as he lives with them. That was the story of Exodus, or that was the intended story at least, that God was living with his people. They were enjoying milk and honey and they were being transformed to become more like their gracious, loving God. How hard can that be? Well, human history and the Bible story tell us that it's nigh on impossible. What you find as you carry on this story is that although these Israelites have been saved out of physical slavery, they were still enslaved by something that caused them to still worship foreign gods and to still enslave one another. That thing that's enslaving them and still controlling their behaviours is called, what the Bible calls, sin. 
this absolute determination to betray God, to trespass his holy requirements, to go against his character, to ignore him, to go after other things, all of that wrapped up together. We're controlled by that. The Israelites continue to be, the whole human race are controlled by sin. So God had saved them out of Egypt, but he had not saved them from sin yet, because that required a lot more than just the blood of a sheep or a goat. Because the blood of a sheep or a goat could only ever be symbolic. It was like Monopoly money. You're not really going to turn up to the bailiffs with a wad of Monopoly money saying, here, I owe you £10,000. I hope this is uh, suitable. That's not a suitable um, payment. A suitable payment for a human sin is human life. And that was what was to come in many years' time. That's where we come to our passage in Ephesians 1. Verse 7 says this, In him, it's referring to Jesus, now we have a true substitute, not just a symbolic sheep that could kind of uh, uh, be there as a placeholder, but the real deal, a true human being, God's own son become human. In him, a true substitute. We have redemption, genuine payment, a ransom payment on our behalf. Not just monopoly money that's not really worth anything, but actually genuine redemption, a true payment through his blood. Again, blood seeping into wooden frames, but this time they're in the shape of a cross rather than a door frame. But then it's this phrase that I want us to get to. How is this redemption, uh, how does this redemption happen? Well, it's by the forgiveness of our trespasses. And this word forgiveness has interested me. And I think this is key for our freedom as individuals and as a church. We need to get this. The one side of forgiveness that I looked up, so you can just do a basic word search online to work out the Greek, the meaning of this word, and where else it happens to occur in the New Testament. And uh, the, the first side of this coin is what I expected, the sort of purification side of things. And that's clear. The majority of texts refer to forgiveness under this sort of sense of purification, the blood of Jesus is a detergent that cleanses us of our sin. And a picture came to me, this, this idea. Imagine at Christmas, um, hopefully we'll be able to go around to family and friends and see people in some way. Um, now imagine you're going to your in-laws perhaps, and uh, you've gone around to their house and you're trying to behave yourself and blah, 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 but then you spill a whole glass of red wine on the carpet and you are devastated. So what do you do? Well, you can't sneak into the kitchen and get out detergent and you're not very good at cleaning anyway. So you just cover the thing up. You put a nice cushion over it or a throw or you move the rug slightly or a bit of uh, furniture and you've covered it up. No one's noticed, it's fine, breathe. But every time you think about that furniture, you see the cushion, you see that bit of rug, you feel the stain that's underneath. 
You feel it and you fear that someone is going to find it out sooner rather than later. Now, I think we can do that a lot of the time with our shame, with these stains of our past, betrayals of trust, violations of other people. Uh, Perhaps it's relational breakdowns that we have caused All manner of things, genuine shameful things that we've done, there are stains underneath. But we can try and cover them up with uh, stupid things like self-esteem practices or uh, improving our CV or getting certain hobbies or behavioural things or personality traits to try and cover up because we don't want anyone to possibly see those stains. So we cover them up. Now, imagine the scenario that you one night sneak downstairs to try and sort this thing out and you move the rug and you lift up the cushion and suddenly the stain has disappeared. You're flabbergasted. How on earth uh, did that go? Uh, And then you look under the cushion and there's a little post-it note that just says, don't worry, I cleaned it for you. Imagine the freedom. And imagine perhaps how stupid you would have felt trying to put all of those things on top when in reality it could just be cleansed. Well, that's the message we get in this passage. These stains of sin, these stains of shame that are on us genuinely can be cleansed. We can be purified. The blood of Jesus is strong enough. It is the most powerful detergent in history. So even if these stains exist in our imagination, they don't exist in reality if we've trusted in Jesus. And our job, walking by faith, is to try and come to terms with reality from God's perspective. That's the freedom that you can walk into. So that's the first side of the coin. It's a detergent, a purifying sense, this forgiveness. But there's another side to the coin, and it is liberation. And I needed to hear this many years ago. I was, uh, I'd grown up not in a Christian environment, and, and, and part of um, my teenage years, I had found myself hooked on watching adult material online. I'm saying it like that because I think there's probably kids watching this. I was watching many, many things and I found myself probably addicted to it. But at the time, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it until I started to follow Jesus. And I realised that this activity, this stuff that I'm doing, really is, has no place in the kingdom of light, in a place where I want to honour people and I don't want to degrade people and I don't want to degrade myself. And I was in some fashion endorsing this horrendous industry. All of those things, it it made me feel this shame, this sense of guilt. And so when I believed in Jesus, I realised that he had cleansed me and forgiven me in that sense, and I was absolutely amazed by the grace of God. But I was living as if I was still in Egypt. Imagine the Exodus story a different way. Imagine that God had just sent in this judgment And they painted the blood over their doors and they'd escaped the judgment of the angel of death that had come over Egypt. But they hadn't ever escaped. They just stayed there. Now, is that a fresh start? Kind of, but not really. Because they're still living under slavery to the Egyptians. Now, I lived in that way for probably a year, knowing that I'd been cleansed by God, but not knowing that I'd been freed, liberated by God. I hadn't come to terms with that reality. 
that actually by his spirit, he had rescued me out of Egypt. I was no longer under the captivity. I didn't have to give in to the temptation. I didn't have to live in the shame because shame is one of the most powerful enslaving, uh, I guess, powers in this world. It, it controls us when we believe it, when we believe the words that we tell ourselves, I am an addict, I cannot get free of this, all these kinds of things. I had to come to terms with the liberating freedom of the forgiveness of my trespasses. That is in this message as well. I found this when I did a word search and simply found this amazing passage in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus gives his manifesto. He says why he has come to this world. And he uses exactly the same word that we have here for forgiveness. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. It's the same word. And recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That is the power of God's forgiveness. Both purifying you and liberating you from sin and shame. But there's more. There's more to this that we have to see. Because if this was simply just our impersonal liberation, our freedom, our ability to get a better control or handle over our own problems, well that would be great, but what good is that on the grandest scale? We worship a God who works on the grandest scale, not just on our particular situations. And that is good news. And that is where Paul takes us in this passage in Ephesians. He says, all of this has happened according to the riches of his grace that he's lavished on us in all his wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And it's not just for me and my salvation, but it is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Jesus. He's gonna head everything up things in heaven and things on earth. The greatest problem in the whole cosmos is that heaven and earth are currently separated due to the reign of sin and human sinfulness. If that is not going to be dealt with ultimately, then all of this is kind of for nothing. If the Israelites have just been saved out of Egypt and then left to wander in the wilderness, to go about their own lives and to carry on sort of worshipping other gods and whatever, doing their own thing. That, that wouldn't have been God's ultimate plan. That wasn't his ultimate desire. He is bringing things to completion in the end. Now, this is good news, I think, because I've been reflecting um, on a psalm, Psalm 126, trying to help me to pray through these days. And the phrase that keeps coming to mind from Psalm 126 is, when all of this is over. Now, we are longing for COVID to be over, the reign of COVID, how controlling it is, how it seems to keep us so captive and uh, taking away so many freedoms that we used to enjoy. But even when COVID is over, the world is still the same. Sin is everywhere. We're still enslaving one another. There's still horrific atrocities going on. There's division everywhere. There's war. When is that going to be over? That's the big question. That's 
what the Bible is answering. That's what we're heading towards. And that's what is all happening because of Jesus. Outside our window, we, we live in a block of flats and we've been watching another block of flats being built over this year. It's gone up in such incredible speed. To see the number of people working at it and the various different jobs that they're doing is incredible. And I think what this passage is saying to us is, now imagine that, but on the grandest scale, trying to free humanity from sin. And every single role is being fulfilled by Jesus. He's the architect of the whole project. He's the project manager. He is the consultant. He's the engineer. He's the structural engineer. He's the builder. He is also the building material. Jesus is the absolute ultimate one who's heading up this entire cosmic project of God to free the world from sin and shame. Are you part of his plan? Have you submitted to him? Are you following him out of Egypt? Have you believed in him? Are you trusting in him? Today you can do that and experience not just the liberation for you, but also believe in and walk with him into the liberation of all things. Because one day, all of this will be over. And what's our experience going to be? Well, Psalm 126 says it really beautifully, these first three verses. Let's read these and then go into this response song. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Indeed, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Let that joy be yours today. Let's sing together. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.